When you're in the supermarket trying to decide what to cook for dinner, I suspect one of the last things on your mind is immigration and migrant laborers. Yet, migrant farm workers pick much of the produce that ends up on our tables. Joining me now is GQ correspondent Jean-Marie Laskus. She spent a season with migrant workers picking blue. Her article, Echo in America, appears in the September issue of the magazine, and I'm pleased that it brings her to our show today for today's underreported segment. Hello. Hi there. Thank you. How many people work in this country as migrant farm workers? Oh, there's about a million or over a million. And uh, do most of them have legal immigration status? Most of them do not. I mean, these numbers are hard to are not hard, but um, it's generally accepted that most of them are not. Most of them being over 50 percent or 75 percent? I would say well over 50 is what the estimates are um, that, that are who are illegal. Now, why did you go to Maine for this article? I used to associate migrant farm workers with warmer states. Yeah, I think we, we typically do, don't we? I think um, we think of Florida, certainly, and Georgia, and the East Coast, and California, and Arizona. But um, I wanted to hop aboard the, the migrant stream, one of them. There are really basically three that run through the country. And um, I had a hard time getting anyone to allow me to come in. And... Um, when I finally hooked up with these folks in Maine who were actually proud of their conditions there for migrant farmers, um, I, was, I was able to get the access that I wanted. And, um, you know, it was, it was surprising to me that <laughs> all our blueberries are picked by people from Mexico and Central American nations. Well, weren't, weren't Mainers picking them until fairly recently? Yes, the, just, just about a generation ago. It was a really sort of, you know, happy community event. Folks came out, you know, the, the, the blueberries were ripe. They had to be picked. Um, and that, that tradition has, has simply died out. And Why I, is that? There not there relatively high unemployment in the, the counties that the blueberries are picked in? Interestingly, it, it gets, yeah, it gets worse. Interestingly, the, the unemployment in Washington County, which is where the bulk of the blueberries are, the blueberry barons, um, unemployment rate is over 10%, and they can't get anyone to come out to the fields to pick these blueberries. They can't. I mean, the the crew chiefs told me over and over and over again, we try and hire, you know, high school kids, local kids. Um, the pay is very good, um, but it's such hard work, they don't last. And the um, people from Mexico and Central American nations have, you know, have, have taken up the, the rakes. Now, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas have made headlines for the conditions that migrant workers live and work in there. Uh, you said that Cherry Fields Foods, which is uh, the farm that you were on, is proud of its conditions. Uh, would you be proud of those conditions if it was your farm? Well, uh, let me say, it's all relative to the conditions in in the other states. You know, um, people were... You know, in, in Florida, in the tomato fields, you know, people are arrested for slavery. Mm. They're, they're, it, it's just apparent. It's just, you know, and, and in Maine, it used to be, I would say about a decade ago, the conditions were quite quite poor. But they've, they've really got, um, they've put an effort into sort of, um, you know, treating people humanely in their farms and they provide you know medical mobile medical units and i mean you know they're doing they're doing more than than 
anywhere else I found. Cherryfield Farms uses the E-Verify test. What information does E-Verify need to screen someone's immigration status? It screens Social Security numbers. Well, you can get a false Social Security number, can't you? Yes, and it's supposed to screen for that. And um, I think clearly that system has uh, is not working. It's very. It was many of the people I spoke to, actually not at Cherryfield, because I at other at other camps um, showed me their proudly showed me their the um, driver's licenses and green cards and social security cards that they bought in Boston off the streets for a hundred bucks. You know, it was common. These are uh, seasonal workers in Maine. Do they live elsewhere usually? They many of the people that I of the camp where I stayed, the camp only exists for really for four weeks out of the year during the season. Then then they move on to another crop. So they'll move on to apples in in New York or Pennsylvania. They follow the ripening crops and eventually end up in the winter back down in Florida where they harvest and then just work their way back up north again. You write that Cherryfield Foods has a zero-tolerance policy that bars children from working in the fields, but that kids end up picking anyway? Well, and I, and I, I don't want to single out Cherryfield Foods because it was, it was certainly the policy. It's, you know, it's illegal, and they, they were diligent about, you know, um, the, when a crew chief drove up, those children would run. But, you know, you, you, you can't cover how many miles of blueberry barrens at all times, and the kids wanted to work. Many of these little, these little kids, they, they were bored. They had really nothing to do back in the camp, so they would um, come with their parents, and it was a family thing, you know. They would just sort of all hang out by the cars and hop out and rake some blueberries and pour them into their parents' buckets. It was very, very, very common. Well, I'm assuming also that you get paid for the number of blueberries you pick, and if your kids can help you, that means more blueberries. Sure. The, the yield would, your your family's yield would increase dramatically if you've got the whole family helping. Mind you, you only have to be 12, legally, to to work in agriculture in this country. So so those those kids were in the clear. It was like the eight and nine-year-olds that had to hide in the car. Is the U.S. dependent on this source of labor, whether the workers are documented or not? We're completely dependent on it. I mean, the the agri- especially agricultural, the, the, these these jobs Americans will not do, and you know that's a sort of become a controversial thing to say. But the data certainly supports it. In agriculture, we depend on our migrant worker. You know, we think we tell ourselves that we're only hiring people who are here legally but in fact i mean it's it's so so far from the truth um you know we're kind of kidding ourselves and i think we're also i just think it's like any 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 we just don't want to think about it we just we just want to have our blueberries on our cornflakes you know we really just don't want to get into the messiness of how they get there and it's the same way it's it's the same way with so much of what the way that we just live now in a very sort of sanitized society. My guest is Jean-Marie Laskus, a correspondent at GQ. Her article, Itcho in America, appears in the September issue of the magazine. You also point out that migrant laborers pay Social Security taxes, and uh, that's a program they'll never benefit from. Is this another way the United States is profiting from this situation? 
Yeah, that sort of surprised me. But when you think about it, it's it's true. They're they're using these fake social security numbers, and so taxes come out, and they will never collect on that. So it, it's like sort of like billions of dollars that that sort of stays <laughs> in the U.S. Treasury. So um, it's does the Tea Party know about this? Pardon? Do the Tea Party legislators know about this? I, I'm sure they'll. <laughs> I'm sure they'd have another way of looking at it. But it's I mean, it's true. They, there's no way they can collect on it. And they are, you know, it has to be taken out of their checks every single week. So <laughs> I don't know where else the money's going. Juan Perez Fevels, a Maine State Monitor advocate, told you a story about a man who was killed in a fight on a farm. He had seven IDs on his belongings, so they couldn't figure out who he actually was? Yeah, and that, that was a, kind of a typical story. That I mean, not that so many people end up murdered in the camps, but, you know, there you are trying to identify identify the victim to find his spouse to give the money that he's earned, and they couldn't even figure out his real name. Is his job, uh, Juan Perez Favils, to help the workers understand the culture that they're working in? Yeah, his job is really to translate both ways, back and forth. He's a state monitor advocate. Most states have them. Um, He's a very visible one, uh, example, in Maine. He came in to reform the conditions there. And, you know, he's a Cuban immigrant, so he he knows the immigrant experience personally. And um, his job really is to, you know, teach them about us as much as us about them. Um, He found that the the cultural things that he had to translate to them just in terms of, you know, drinking and driving, we don't do that here, you know, Refrigeration. We you have to put the things in the refrigerator. They don't have refrigerators from back home. They or else the electricity so spotty. They don't. They're not used to that. Although your article focuses on a man named Urbano and his two teenage sons, Pedro and Juan, and they live in North Carolina. They must know about these sorts of things. Sure. Although although uh, Urbano uh, returned to Mexico last year and had serious immigration problems. Yeah, poor Urbano. Who he's he was a. You know he's been living here legally since the since the eighties, and um, basically went home to Mexico when he heard that his father was murdered. And um, the, you're a sitting duck if you're, I guess, going back into Mexico from the U.S. They assume you're a migrant farmer, and they assume you have cash on you. And the bus was pulled over, and they were robbed, and he lost all his money, and he had to he got stuck there until he could earn enough to come back, which took months. Then he lost his home in uh, North Carolina? Yes, because he was not able to keep up with the payments. So that's how they ended up in Maine, the two boys um, and the father, because the, 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 the pay is so good in Maine, in the Blueberry Barrens, and they were there just trying to make enough money to save the house. Now, we have very little time left, but your article opens with one of Urbano's sons waking up in the middle of the night unable to see is access to medical care a major problem for these workers? Well, yeah, sure, because they, you know they're they're migrants, so they're they don't even know where anything is. I mean, they're out in the woods. They they basically have a compass, um, and if they're lucky enough, they'll have a, a mobile unit come around. But I mean, you wake up in the middle of the night with your kid blind. That that's a that's an emergency that you don't readily know how to deal with. 
Uh, in, a, in, a, in a strange place. Jean-Marie, uh, we have very little time, but uh, there are new, tougher immigration laws all over the country. Alabama's uh, just uh, went uh, was uh, okayed by a judge, and uh, immigration from Mexico has dropped since the 1990s. Uh, do we still have a, a large pool of uh, migrant workers working in our fields? Oh, we have a huge pool of migrant workers working in our fields, but the, the, the numbers show that the 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 people coming in from Mexico um, has de- illegally has decreased by 60% in the last decade. Jean-Marie Laskus is a GQ correspondent. Her article, Echo in America, appears in the September issue of the magazine. And Jean-Marie, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been, uh, I guess it's been a pleasure talking to you. Maybe it's been disturbing talking to you. Oh, well, just pay attention to your blueberries and appreciate who gets them. <laughs> On tomorrow's show, Joseph Gordon-Levitt talks about his career, his new movie, Fifty Fifty, and his collaborative online production company. And then Jan Maxwell and Danny Burstein swing by to talk about starring in the hit revival of Stephen Sondheim's classic but rarely performed musical, Follies. Also, the director and two of the actors from the Mint Theater's production of Temporal Powers, Teresa Devey's vintage play about a destitute couple in 1920s Ireland who stumble upon a hidden treasure. And Please Explain is all about endangered species. The Leonard Lopez Show is produced by Blakeney Schick, Stephen Valentino, and Julia Corcoran. Melissa Egan is the executive producer, and we had help today from Keith Korn, Sarah Waltuck, and contributing producer Angela Sheldon. Debbie Fountain was at the audio controls. I'm Leonard Lopez, your host. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.